mean, which one is the first choice, for example, for hypertension? What is the advantage, for example, of an ACE for cardiac heart failure, you know? So that's how when you do your table, um, you know, make sure that you have all the indication for one class of drug and what, you know, what's the benefits of using an ACE for cardiac heart failure because he reduces the mortality, you know, that's very important. And that's why it's the first choice. And a patient who has hypertension and cardiac heart failure is not going to be on a thiazide anymore. It's probably going to be on an ACE already because they already switched them. Yeah. And then the questions, the study questions you asked for correlation as well. Last week is really like mechanism of action for hypertension. And today you have to understand what is the mechanism for cardiac heart failure. You know, what, how does it improve the symptom of cardiac heart failure? Are we going to get additional questions from this specific question? There is some objective here. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you guys can look at the objectives on that first page. I kind of gave you guys a little guide. It's pretty general, though, but you guys can kind of um, help you guys pick out what's important. Okay? Um, so for nitrates and hydralazine, so we use these in combination. We don't give um, just one for heart failure. So these are going to work similar to the ACE and the ARBs. Um, so if for some reason your patient can't be on an ACE inhibitor, can't be on an ARB, this would be a good option because the mechanism is going to be um, similar. So nitrates, um, they work by decreasing preload, and then hydralazine works by decreasing afterload. So that combination of both of them is what's going to really help us. Um, and then, so for these, we're going to use them in symptomatic patients with an ejection fraction of less than 40% and if um, they can't tolerate an ACE or an ARB. Um, so reasons why a patient might not be able to tolerate an ACE would be if they have renal insufficiency, because remember the ACEs increase your serum creatinine. If their potassium levels, they can't handle the ACE inhibitor, or if they have um, hypertension. And these also improve survival, so that's good, but they don't affect that remodeling. So they don't have any effect on remodeling, so that's why our ACE inhibitors are our preferred drug of choice. Um, and these are also um, helpful in our um, African-American patients. Remember that the angioedema is more prevalent in African-American patients. And I don't know if you guys, during your hypertension lecture, you talked about um, the different compelling indications. So African-American patients tend to respond um, better to thiazides, uh, to diuretics and calcium channel blockers in comparison to ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. So they also respond well to nitrates and hydralazine. So this might be helpful in that patient population where the ACE inhibitors might not be working um, as effectively. So our patients that may get this are New York Heart Association class two, three, and four, and stage C and D. So two, three, and four, and stage C and D. And um, it also comes in a combination. So uh, this won't be on the test, but just so you know, Bidil is a combination of one pill that has both of these medications, hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate. Yes?
That's a good question. So the theory actually behind it goes all the way, this is um, all the way back to kind of during the slave um, ships that m uh, moved from Africa to the United States. So a lot of the patients that were able to, or the, the people that were on the ships that were able to retain sodium, they were the ones that were able to keep the fluid, that water in their body longer. So they were able to kind of survive that trip from Africa to the United States. So this is kind of the hypothesis behind it. So when we look at our African-American patients in the United States, a lot of them are, um, yeah, so they're sodium retainers, kind of, they keep that sodium on. So a lot of those diuretics that work by um, getting fluid off, they work very well, and then the calcium channel block. So it has to do with kind of that. So that's the theory behind it, but obviously it hasn't been studied as much, but when they did a lot of the large-scale hypertension studies, that's what they found, that the drugs that work better in that patient population, they looked at diabetic patients, so ACE inhibitors are good for diabetic patients. So a lot of those different types of populations, it's important to keep that in mind for which drugs work good in, in different populations. Okay, so um, we are going to monitor um, hypertension and we also want to avoid phosphodiesterase um, inhibitors. So that was sildenafil, which is Viagra, um, Vardenafil, so all of those medications for erectile dysfunction because remember, if you guys had that, did you guys talk about Viagra? I think, yeah. Um, so those you can't give with nitrates because they can drop your blood pressure to a life-threatening level, so you can have life-threatening uh, hypertension. So you want to avoid that, and that's an important drug interaction to know. And uh, Viagra also has another brand name, Revadio. So that's why I put that on there. Revadio is the indication for pulmonary uh, hypertension. So you might hear it called Revadio. It's the same thing as sildenafil. That's why the brand names get confusing too, because we can have different brand names or more than one brand name for the same product. So that's why we try to always focus on the generic names, okay? Because the generic name is not going to change. Um, Okay, so our next drug is digoxin, and this is going to inhibit the sodium-potassium ATPase um, pump. So it's going to reduce our um, calcium transport out, which increases the intracellular calcium. So when you have calcium inside, it's going to increase the contractility. Um, and so that means it's a positive ionotropic agent. So ionotropic means contractility. And then if you hear chronotropic, that's the heart rate. So positive inotropic agent means that it's making the heart pump with more force. Um, so we use this in an ejection fraction of less than 40% in symptomatic patients that are on optimal therapy with an ACE or beta blocker. And this improves symptoms only. Only symptomatic relief. It does not affect mortality. And there's also been shown a small um, but significant increase in mortality in women. Um, so that's why we try to really use this as a last-line agent, especially because we also have to monitor levels of digoxin. So I have the therapeutic range here for you guys. I don't want you guys to memorize this, but just know that it does have a, thera a narrow therapeutic index. So we have to be careful because if we get too high, we can have toxicity with DIG. 
So um, a toxicity of greater than two can cause, um, initially you can have GI complaints. Your patient might say that they have nausea, vomiting, and then that can progress on to CNS confusion. Um, so they might start to have confusion, delirium, and all of this can be reversed if you stop uh, the medication. So it's not irreversible, but you just want to monitor that. And the thing we're trying to avoid is, in the worst case, it can cause arrhythmias. So um, I'm going to skip all the part about um, the treatment for arrhythmias for time's sake. Um, and um, the drug interactions, the important one to know is amiodarone. I put a star next to that because we're going to talk about amiodarone because that's an antiarrhythmic agent. So that can actually decrease the uh, dose of digoxin by 50%. So 50% is pretty significant. So if you have your patient on amio and dig, you have to kind of increase your dose of digoxin. So now you guys have that chart there um, I put in for you guys, so you guys can kind of also use this to study if this is easier than uh, the guideline, um, the guideline uh, form. But so you can see everyone will get an ACE, right? Do you guys have that chart in your? Okay, so everyone gets an ACE. Put a star on it. <laughs> and then if you can't handle an ACE, if you're intolerant, that's when you'll get the ARB. Everyone gets a beta blocker. And then if you see all the way on the right-hand side, that's our mainstay because those both decrease mortality. And then um, our symptomatic patients will get a diuretic. So that's our main three drugs that we're going to use, ACE, beta blocker, diuretic. And then the other ones kind of supplement if um, your patient needs additional um, treatments or they're intolerant to different things, that's when the other ones come into play. Um, so you guys can look at that later when you're going back to study. Oh, I have this in here. Okay, so now we're going to talk about decompensated heart failure. So it might be called acute decompensated heart failure or just decompensated heart failure. It's the same thing. And this is an emergency situation. So you have acute worsening of the patient's uh, baseline symptoms of volume overload and hypoperfusion. So they're really not going to get enough blood that they need. And a lot of it, like I said earlier, is diet non-inherent. So these patients that just had a huge bag of potato chips, ate all this salt, and then they're coming into the hospital because they're in this decompensated state. Yes, it's a big reason why people get decompensated. Um, like a huge bag of chips, but you know, some, but even, yeah, so they already have heart, this is not just me and you, uh, assuming that you guys don't have heart failure, but um, <laughs> like a regular patient that just, you know, had potato chips, but this is someone who, you know, maybe they're non-compliant with their medications, and they've had a long history, they've had uh, heart attacks, they have uncontrolled hypertension, they have heart failure, and then this just kind of adds on to it, so it's like the tipping point over um, so, and then remember I talked about that BNP, the natriuretic peptides earlier. So BNP gets released when your left ventricle gets stretched. And in acute decompensated heart failure, we have this huge stretching of the left ventricle. So you have large amounts of BNP that are released. And that's our body compensating, trying to get that fluid out. Because remember, it causes a diuretic effect. So the way we kind of monitor uh, for if our patient's in decompensated heart failure, we might look at the BNP levels. And if they drastically increase, that might signal us to think that we have decompensated heart failure. 
but it can be kind of controversial because some people naturally have high levels of BNP anyways. Um, so, but that's beyond this lecture. So, okay, um, the inotropic agents, these, remember, inotropic means contractility, right? We want our drugs that are going to increase the force of um, the heart rate because we're trying to get as much blood flow to the body as we can in our decompensated heart. So melrinone um, is an example, and this works by bringing the calcium inside the cell. The calcium is going to increase the force of contraction, and it's going to inhibit um, phosphodiesterase, which increases the levels of AMP. And this is something that we use in the hospital only, so it's only an IV medication. Um, and um, at high doses, there are risk of arrhythmias with this medication. Uh, the other one is dobutamine, which um, works on the beta-1 receptor. Which was a midterm question. Um, <laughs> so remember the beta-1, um, that's the ones that are on our heart. And um, so it works there, and um, this increases contractility and heart rate. Um, but some studies have shown that it increases mortality. So we try to really limit this to short-term use. And there's also tolerance that can develop within like 72 hours of this medication. So it's really for short-term use to kind of get our patient's vitals back in order. So those were inotropic agents. The next one that we're talking about is Neceratide, um, which is Natricor. And this medication is um, synthetic BNP. So it's not an... Um, it's not an inotropic agent. It's a synthetic form of BNP. So that natural BNP that gets released, this is that synthetic um, formulation, and it's going to help us get that fluid off. Um, so it's going to decrease our fluid levels and our volume overload. It causes vasodilation and then um, increased diuresis. And it also works similar to uh, nitroglycerin. Um, but um, it's more rapid acting than nitroglycerin, as well as our inotropic agents. So a lot of patients will get this, um, and then they may also need one of the inotropic agents on top of it. So this will help get that fluid off, and then they have the inotropic agents that maintain contractility. And these are helpful also in patients that are refractory to diuretics. If the diuretics stop working, the metolazone stops working, you can add this, and that might help get some of the other fluid off. Yeah, and decompensated heart failure, yeah. Okay, so um, I also have a picture of the cardiac anatomy, so you guys can review that if you guys, I just put that in there, so if you guys uh, need to review that. So that was all of heart failure, so you guys can take a deep breath now, because I know it's probably a lot. Um, Heart failure is kind of confusing, so that's why I wanted to have those videos so you guys can visualize. So now we're going to talk about antiarrhythmic agents. So um, we're going to talk about electrophysiology first. So um, the first thing that happens in the SA node, which is here, the SA node is the main pacemaker of our heart, so that's going to start the current, the electrical current, 
Um, so the impulses are going to start here. We have about 60 to 100 beats per minute. Um, and then that will generate an action potential that will contract the atria. So the atria are the top chambers of the heart. So those will contract. And then that impulse goes down to the AV node. So the AV node is the next thing that it hits. And the AV node um, is the conduction pathway between the atria and the bottom, the ventricles. Um, so here, um, you're going to allow it to slow down so that the atria can completely contract before that impulse goes down to the ventricles. And then as it goes down, it's going to go down the bundle of his, and you can see it branches off um, to the left side as well as the right side. The impulse goes around the heart there. And it goes down to the small Purkinje fibers, and that will eventually cause the bottom chambers, the uh, ventricles, to contract. <clears throat> So before all of this can happen, before all of this impulse can occur, we need to have some type of stimulus to start our impulse. So that's going to be um, the impulse formation. So at resting membrane, you guys can see here, we're at about negative 70. And if your stimulus doesn't go over a certain threshold, these kind of get ignored if you have a small type of signal that goes. But if it goes above the threshold, that's when we'll start an action potential. So some of the stimulus will get ignored, and if it's strong enough, it'll start this electrical impulse, okay? Um, so from a resting membrane, we're going to have a concentration gradient of the ions across the cell. And then that will start an action potential if we have a stimulus that is strong enough. And that's going to have uh, the ions move across the cell membrane. So that's going to be depolarization. And then we can have repolarization where um, the ions are going to go back to the resting state. And then in the refractory period here, this is a time period where the uh, neuron needs recovery. So it can't be stimulated again during this time until it gets back to its resting state. So. All of that kind of gives you an idea, but this is uh, important, and this is where we're going to see the drugs start to fit in the different areas of the action potential. So in phase zero, that's where sodium starts to enter. These are the fast sodium channels that are going to enter. And um, <clears throat> so you just see that huge change in the positive direction because all of that sodium is flooding in. Um, and then in phase one, you have um, early rapid repolarization. So the, the fast sodium channels are going to start to close. And then you have potassium that's going to start to exit the cell. And then so that's an ion exchange between sodium and potassium. And then in phase two, you have that plateau stage here. So that's when the slow calcium channels are going to open. And then potassium is going to continue to exit. And then phase three is final uh, repolarization. See right there. So that's when um, potassium is completely out, and sodium and uh, sodium um, gets in inactivated. So that's when those stop also. And then phase four is slow uh, depolarization. So you go back to the resting state. So that was pretty quick, but. Um, we're going to talk about the drugs and how they affect different um, areas. They're going to affect sodium, they're going to affect potassium. So this will kind of help when you guys go back to study. <clears throat>
you guys can see here on the left side, this is a normal impulse, and you can see it gets originated, and it goes evenly across both of the sides for our heart. And then in um, re-entry, you have this impulse that kind of goes, it loops back around, and it can cause another uh, a premature beat here. Um, so that's when you have kind of a fast heart rate, um, more contraction. And then you can also have block, where you have slower conduction. So arrhythmias can be faster or slower heart rate. So that's all you really need to know from here. Um, so just use this kind of to give you a, a guide, but you don't need to memorize the diagram or anything. And all of this that I've talked about now, that's the basics, and now we're gonna talk about the drugs. So again, uh, exam material is gonna be from what we talk about now. Yes? Uh, I was just confused, what does that um, that's the impulse conduction going down um, the, the neuron. It, I think this is in the book too, so if you guys want to read about it, about how the impulses are conducted, but you guys don't, this is not going to be on your exam material. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the antiarrhythmic drugs. Um, so our antiarrhythmics, they're classified as the Von Williams classification. Um, so you commonly hear antiarrhythmics as class one, um, class one A, class one C. This is all part of the Von Williams classification system. And so here you have new drugs. tracks in rhythmic sequence for the duration of our lifetime. Each beat is stimulated by an electrical signal that is generated by the heart's conduction system. A normal heart beats 60 to 100 times per minute. Sometimes a problem with the conduction system causes the heart to beat too fast, too slow, or to have an erratic or irregular beat. A test, called an electrocardiogram or EKG, can measure and record the heart's electrical activity. In a normal heartbeat, the heart's signal follows a specific pathway through the heart. The signal begins in the sinoatrial node, or SA node, located in the right atrium. The SA node triggers the atria to contract, pushing blood into the ventricles. The electrical signal then travels through the atrioventricular node, or AV node, and into the ventricles. This signal now causes the ventricles to contract pumping blood to the lungs and body. Atrial fibrillation is a type of arrhythmia or abnormal heartbeat that is caused by your... Alright, so for our medications here, um, our first one is class 1. So there's three different subgroups in class 1. There's class 1A, um, 1B, and 1C. And these all work on sodium channel blockade. So when you guys um, go back to looking at the action potential, you guys can kind of match up where on the action potential these drugs fit in. Um, so these block those fast sodium channels and they decrease depolarization. So you have slower impulse conduction uh, in, the in the atria. Um, 
And class 1A and 1C, those two agents you can't use in structural heart disease or left ventricular dysfunction. So that's what really limits our class 1A and 1C agents because most of our patients that have arrhythmias are probably going to have some type of structural heart disease, right? So that's what kind of limits class 1A and 1B. Uh, left ventricular dysfunction. Um, so I put a star next to quinidine, lidocaine, and flecainide. So I think those are the ones we'll go for that since these are new drugs. Yes? Um, isn't lidocaine for like a topical for pain? Yeah. Yes. It's an antiarrhythmic mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll talk about lidocaine in more detail and how uh, the different uses for lidocaine. Um, the beta blockers, these are going to, um, they take um, a little longer um, on the next impulse, so they decrease the velocity. They work on uh, decreasing AV node conduction, and then they prolong that refractory period. Um, so these are... Um, we, you guys already have your beta blockers, so whichever ones that Dr. Sokolow told you, but I picked the cardioselective atenolol and metoprolol. Um, and then our class three ones, um, so I put a star next to three of these. Amiodarone, we're going to talk about in more detail, um, but these work on potassium channel blockade. That's their primary mechanism, but they also work on calcium and sodium channel blockade. Um, and then I want you guys to notice this last one, Sotolol here. It's a, that same ending as the beta blockers, kind of. So don't get confused with this one because Sotolol is a beta blocker, but it also works on potassium channels. So it's classified under class three, not with the rest of the beta blockers. So um, just keep that in mind when you guys remember, if you guys just memorize it by the end of the drug. Uh, name. And then also dofetilide there. Um, this one, um, it can cause QT prolongation. Um, so for this drug, when we prescribe it, you kind of have to enroll your, your patient in the specific program and you have to give them a lot of counseling on QT prolongation. So we still use it, but um, there are some extra steps that go uh, along with prescribing dofetilide. And um, so our last drugs are class four, our calcium channel blockers. And these are non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. So you guys remember the difference, right? The other ones, that was um, the peens, right? And these are verapamil and diltiazem that are our non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Um, so these are gonna decrease the conduction of the velocity of the AV node. So we're gonna talk about two drugs specifically, uh, lidocaine and amiodarone. So lidocaine is a class 1B agent, and these accelerate the repolarization, the refractory period. Um, and there's uh, no effect on the EKG on these. Um, so they don't um, cause QT prolongation or anything like that. Um, it can be for the treatment of ventricular arrhythmias, so that are, that's our bottom chambers of our heart when we have arrhythmias uh, with the ventricles. And 
Um, like your classmate said there, it can also be used as a local anesthetic and for chronic pain. So there's lidocaine patches that you can use for back pain or different kinds of pain, and then it can also be used as an anesthetic. So it has different uh, uses, but uh, your test questions are... Well, you might have a question on that. I think there was a question on that. And, yeah, because also, you know, it's the way it's administered, you know, if it's a topical or if it's administered for um, antiarrhythmia. Right. You so won't get, you know, um, too much of that antiarrhythmic effect when it's used as a topical. Of course, you always have the risk of having, you know. Um, Are there any, like, vasoconstrictive effects when you take it for this indication? You know, like you said, it was used augmented. It can be used for different things. It really depends on the route that you're giving it, okay? And um, it has extensive first pass effects, so that's why when we give it for arrhythmias, we give it IV. Um, and um, it can, it easily crosses the blood-brain barrier. So when you see drugs that have a lot of CNS side effects, like dizziness, drowsiness, hallucinations, that means it's very lipophilic. It easily crosses the blood-brain barrier. So any drug that you see that has a lot of these CNS side effects, that's probably um, because it's very lipophilic. And then um, we also have the risk of seizures and respiratory depression, so you really do need to monitor this. And some patients might have a cane allergy. Have you guys heard of that one, cane allergy? So um, that's the end of it, lidocaine, the cane. Uh, so some people, like Novocaine, right, that you get from the dentist. So there's different uh, canes in this classification. So if, they ha if you uh, ask them if they've ever gotten um, dental work done and they've gotten some type of reaction to Novocaine, then you would want to be careful with using uh, lidocaine. Okay, so our next drug is amiodarone, and this is a class three agent. It works on potassium channel blockade, but it also has a mechanism on calcium and sodium, and these decrease our heart rate, AV conduction, and QT prolongation. Um, this is an important drug um, because it can be used for ventricular arrhythmias as well as atrial, so it can be used for uh, um, if you have an arrhythmia in the top chambers or the bottom chambers. And sometimes if we don't have time to figure out what's going on with our patient, we need to quickly give something. Since amio is safe for both, that's an option why um, a good uh, time that we can use amio. But we try to reserve it because we're going to talk about the long-term toxicities and a lot of the um, safety profile with amio. Uh, the benefits are that it's once daily, it's not associated with increased mortality, and it's safe in structural heart disease. So remember class 1A and 1C agents, you can't use in structural heart disease. And there's also a pretty low rate of arrhythmias. So um, this is kind of contra in, uh, contradictory, but all the antiarrhythmic agents, one of the side effects is arrhythmias. Um, so it kind of doesn't make sense, but it's because they're affecting the impulse conduction. So that's the biggest side effect with antiarrhythmics is the risk of arrhythmias, pro-arrhythmic, right? Uh, but with amio, you have less of that risk. 
Um, so the adverse effects, you can see the list goes on and on. It's, it pretty much affects every organ system, your heart, neuro, derm, pulmonary, everything except for the kidneys. So this is one drug that it does not affect the kidneys. It pretty much affects everything else. I want you guys to put a star next to pulmonary, um, thyroid, uh, and um, your liver. Uh, the LFT. So, um, first we're going to talk about pulmonary. So, under pulmonary, I have pulmonary fibrosis. So, this drug has a black box warning. That's important. Black box warning for um, pulmonary fibrosis. Um, so, we have to look out for that. It can also cause hypo or hyperthyroidism. So, it can cause either one. And then, um, it can also cause hepatotoxicity. So, we're going to be doing a lot of tests on our patients that are on amio. We're going to um, be checking their eyes, their chest x-ray, everything. But the main things I want you to know are these three things. Um, LFTs to look at your liver function test, thyroid function test, because uh, there's a lot of iodine in the amiodarone, and then also pulmonary function test because it can cause pulmonary fibrosis. So you'll, they'll be getting a chest x-ray and things also. Um, drug interactions, so remember we talked about with DIG and AMIO, it's just coming up again that there is a drug interaction with DIG and AMIO. So now we're going to talk about the different types of arrhythmias after we talk, we just talked about all the medications, so there can be atrial uh, arrhythmias or ventricular arrhythmias. So the one we're going to focus on is AFib or atrial fibrillation. Um, and this is the most common type of arrhythmia that requires treatment. And the thing is that it can go away on its own for some patients, or some, some patients may need um, treatment to uh, make it go away. Um, and you have multiple re-entry impulses in the atria. Um, it's also associated with a high risk of stroke. So notice I put a star next to that. That's important. So what happens in AFib is that your atria, the top chambers of your heart are beating so fast, about three times as fast as your ventricles. So what happens is it's beating so fast that it doesn't have time to relax. Uh, if you guys want to look up here real quick. So the atria are beating so fast, right, that if you're not having any time to relax, none of the blood can come through to the ventricles. And then you have blood that pools in your atria here. So the blood is kind of sitting in that atria. And when you have blood that's sitting there, you have a risk for clots, okay? And so those clots, um, if they have a chance to kind of get out into the ventricles, go out through the left ventricle, it can cause a stroke. Um, and that's what we're really concerned about. So um, we're worried about preventing stroke also. Um, so I have a quick video. Question. Yes. Oh, sorry. Is it is it AFib that you can reset by doing Valsalva? Is that? I don't know what Valsalva is. Oh, it's like pushing. Straining. Oh, I have no, I'm not sure. I don't know. Sorry. ventricles to contract, pumping blood to the lungs and body. 
Atrial fibrillation is a type of arrhythmia or abnormal heartbeat that is caused by erratic electrical signals originating from the atria. During this rhythm disturbance, the normal coordinated contractions between the atria and ventricles become compromised, interfering with the heart's ability to efficiently deliver blood to the body. In people who experience atrial fibrillation, the SA node fires rapidly, causing the atria to contract erratically. The irregular contractions do not fill the ventricles with blood properly, causing the ventricular contractions to also become erratic. The heart rate may increase to 100 to 175 beats per minute or more. Atrial fibrillation can cause fainting, weakness, and may lead to blood clots and other complications. The condition can be treated with medication or with surgery. In some patients, a pacemaker may be inserted in order to regulate heart rhythm. Okay, so our treatment for our AFib, we have two main treatments. It's rate control or rhythm control. So rate control is exactly what it sounds like. We're controlling the rate. We're going to try to decrease heart rate and decrease contractility. Because remember, AFib, we have our atria that are beating about three times as fast as they normally should. And then the other thing is rhythm control. So that's when we're trying to convert our patient, cardiovert them from AFib back to sinus rhythm. So rhythm control is getting the rhythm back to normal. The other things are surgical things, so you can do catheter ablation, but catheter ablation, it really depends on if you're at a hospital that provides those services, and um, the success rate really depends on the skill level of the physician. That's very important um, if your AFIT, um, ablation procedure is going to work or not, but um, we're not going to talk too much about that. And then also anticoagulation. So remember, our patients are at risk for stroke. So we're going to anticoagulate our patients. Yes? What is the NSR, normal sinus rhythm? Normal sinus rhythm. Are they at high risk for pulmonary embolism too, or just stroke? Um, well, they're at risk for like any type of PE, DVT, anything, but stroke is the most, uh, yeah, the most important thing that we're trying to take care of, yeah, prevent. Yes. I feel like the book is saying that uh, the atrial fibrillation might be caused by um, and then a part of the heart beating faster that's around some, I guess, dead heart cells. Um, would this lead, would the catheter ablation lead to more of those, you know, like more locations firing faster? Um, okay, so I think I put a picture of, if you guys have, so go to the last page the very, very last page, and I put a picture of ablation, so we're not going to talk too much about those medical procedures, but you guys can see that you basically have this catheter that goes in through the femoral artery, and then you lead that into the heart, and you kind of, um, you're basically like ablating the area where the impulse is originating, so if it starts in the atria, you're kind of stopping that impulse from originating, and then usually you want to try to give them some type of pacemaker so you get that normal conduction. So, yeah, but we're not going to talk too much about all that medical stuff, but if you want to read more about it, you can read about ablation procedures. Yeah? Earlier you said um, about um, 
bringing the rhythm back to normal? Um, you said you want to bring it from apex to, to what? To normal sinus rhythm. To normal sinus rhythm. Yeah. Um, so for our rate control, the drugs that we have are, um, okay, where, I'll, I'll talk quick. I'll talk quickly. Sorry, guys. Okay, so we have beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. So think about it. It makes sense, right? Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers decrease your heart rate. So if we give drugs that decrease heart rate, that's what we use for rate control. Um, and then you can also use DIG, but it's not very effective alone. So if you need something on top of that, you can add DIG along with it. But DIG is not going to be the main thing. It's going to be beta blocker and calcium channel blocker. Decrease your heart rate so we get our heart rate back to normal. So rate control, right? Um, and then our rhythm control, we're going from AFib to sinus rhythm. Um, so we can use any of our agents um, for this that are going to be our antiarrhythmics that convert us back. Um, and then I want you guys to remember amio for this. So um, amiodarone, um, because it can be used for atrial um, arrhythmias or ventricular, it's a good option, but remember that long-term toxicity. Um, and there's also rules for when you use rhythm control because say your patient has AFib for a long time, they may already have those clots in the atria. So when you uh, cardiovert your patient, so that means getting them back to sinus rhythm, that clot can now have a chance to go out into the ventricles and cause a stroke. So before we do rhythm control, we have to anticoagulate our patients for a certain amount of time before and after to make sure that um, that clot doesn't have a chance to cause a stroke. And then, um, so our anticoagulation is based on certain risk factors. Um, there's a score thing called the CHATS-2 score, and you look at how many risk factors your patient has and see if they're going to be on aspirin or if they're going to be anticoagulated with Coumadin, Warfarin. And we'll see the anticoagulant on week 10. Okay, so you guys still have to hear about those, but so that their risk factors will determine if they get aspirin or warfarin. Um, a flutter, I'm not going to talk about. It's pretty much the same thing, but a little slower than AFib. And then ventricular arrhythmias. Um, these are arrhythmias in the ventricles, and these are very much more serious than AFib because they can cause sudden cardiac death. Um, usually, this occurs in patients that have a long history of cardiac problems, um, and um, most of our patients are going to become in a hemodynamically unstable state, so they're going to need quick, uh, like a defibrillator or a shock, so most of our patients here are going to need to be hospitalized very quickly. Um, they can also get an ICD for prevention of this or ablation to prevent this. But once they have a ventricular arrhythmia, the drugs that we can use, um, amio is the drug of choice, and then you can use a couple of different agents for that. Um, but the goal is to try to get them back to normal. Um, and then torsades is another uh, ventricular arrhythmia that is from QT prolongation. So any drug that causes QT prolongation, we're worried about torsades. And the way that we treat that is we just basically push uh, magnesium until the arrhythmia stops. So that's how you treat it is with magnesium. And beta blockers can actually be preventative for torsades. Um, so that's pretty much it. I have a quick, I think this is a very quick And case. this chart is really important, like the, 
with the drugs, where it, for you to study, it's going to make more sense than this two. Right. Um, so I won't show the last video I have, but so what Dr. Sokolo said, this last chart, this is really, really going to help you while you guys are studying because all the mechanisms are with the action potential. So you guys can go back and look at this. And remember, this is farm, so a lot of your drug or your exam questions are not going to be so much on how you treat, but mechanism, adverse effects, side effects, so drug interactions. So try to focus on that, and then she'll clarify, I guess, next yeah, week. Yeah, I will send you an email. Okay. And then you guys can email me, too, if you guys have questions. My email address is on there. Could you possibly, I guess, do you have a I, YouTube so I can't share the video clips because UCLA has this pending lawsuit about streaming videos or something. So I can't unfortunately share the clips with you guys. But all these videos, you can easily find them on YouTube or um, you can do Yahoo video search and get videos if you like the visuals, okay? Sorry, one more second. I wanted to tell you guys about really quick. A talker